I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. This passage in Mark is the big reveal. This is the big unveiling. Jesus is showing us the thing that's misunderstood about the Messiah, the thing that people don't get about Jesus in the first century, as well, even nowadays. A lot of people are missing this central aspect of the mission and person of Christ. They're missing it. It's the center of the gospel of Mark, Mark 8, right here. This is it. This is like the big unveiling moment. If, if there was a soundtrack to Mark, there would be dramatic music at this point. It's kind of important. Uh, you can't miss this part, although a lot of people do miss it. So let me just give you, the, just the, set the stage for us. Mark shows us, uh, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, we t- some people talk about the messianic secret of Mark, that through Mark there is this sort of constant command from Jesus, like, don't tell people about what I'm doing here. Don't tell them this thing that I did, this healing that I performed, that kind of thing. Well, at the same time, he's doing miracles that are clearly in Mark meant to tell the audience or the readers of Mark who Jesus really is. So we have this kind of like interplay of this sort of confusing, what is, why is Jesus not telling us who he is? Why, why is, are these miracles revealing who he is? What's going on here? And basically what we're getting from the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels in general is that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the long expected Jewish Messiah, he was highly anticipated and largely misunderstood. And that is the whole like framing you need in the Gospel of Mark to understand this messianic secret. The Messiah was highly anticipated and largely misunderstood. And this section in Mark is where Jesus is going to reveal something essential about the Messiah that they didn't get, but he refuses to allow you to interpret who he is without this element. In other words, it's like, hey, here's something essential about Jesus. You got to know this. Um, So this is meant to clarify who Jesus is and what his big mission really is. We're going to read through Mark 8, verse 27 through um, 38. We're going to read through that section, then we're going to go over it verse by verse and just be thoughtfully studying and understanding it. Uh, Again, this is uh, the Mark series. I believe this is part 29 in the series. If if you're uh, watching online and you want to catch the the whole series, there's going to be a link for a playlist in the description or somewhere, wherever you're watching this video. There should be a link somewhere nearby where you can check out the whole playlist. All right, Mark 8, 27. Let's just soak up the passage, think about it, and then we'll analyze it thoughtfully. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you Say that I am. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And as, uh, and he was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you were not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So that's the, that's the whole section. And this is, I think it's just one section. I think it should be treated as one thing. If I could give you a quick overview, right? Jesus is like, hey, who do they think I am? And they're all confused, right? They don't understand exactly who Jesus is. He's like, I'm the, you know, reveals through Peter. Yes, that's me. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the long awaited Messiah. First thing he does after confirming openly his identity, and I'm going to die and rise again. I'm going to be rejected. Peter, because he has highly anticipated the Messiah and largely misunderstood him, he's upset with Jesus saying, seeming to affirm he's the Messiah, but then that he's going to die and rise. He's like, no way. No, this is not going to happen. This is, this, this is what the Messiah does. And now you see why Jesus wouldn't reveal his himself as openly because of this misconception. He rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. And then he turns and tells everybody, guess what? Not only am I going to die, you need to die. You got to take up your cross and follow me. Something that you weren't expecting when you decided to be a disciple of Christ. Now this is death is in different senses and all this. There's a lot of stuff to unpack, but that's kind of the overview of this passage. Let's look now at verse 27. It says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who, who do the people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. Um, in the context of Mark 8, these are all wrong answers, okay? Jesus isn't John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not one of the prophets. That's actually what Islam says Jesus is. He's just one of the prophets. We'll come back to that in a minute. But these answers are wrong, but we can learn a lot from them. We can, like, evaluate the wrong answers about Jesus, and we learn... Um, how people even today try to misinterpret Christ, misunderstand Jesus, even some Christians. They just, it's just not clicking what Jesus was meant to do because when we think about the Messiah or the, the great one or the one that God promised, we don't naturally think he's going to do what Jesus ends up doing. Like we, would, we would create some sort of superhero version that would be totally different than what Christ actually did. So um, with John the Baptist, there were really two parts. Let's talk about why they called him John the Baptist and how that was wrong. Um, there were two parts to John's ministry. One part of John's ministry was he's called people to repentance um, and to live for God. So he was like a moral reformer. And he was. He was a moral reformer. That's not all he was, but he was a moral reformer. In John 1, 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So he's like, he's like get, get your life straight, is kind of what he's saying. Fix your, yourself, your culture, your lives. Get it right before God. In John 1, 31, he says, um, in addition to this, he says, so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. But that's not a moral reformer's job, right? He's, he's like the one, the he is Jesus. And he's like, so that Jesus could be known, I came baptizing with water. So now John had another side of his ministry, not moral reformer, but forerunner for the Messiah, forerunner for the one. So he's preparing the way for the one. In Mark 1, 4, in Mark 1, 4, um, we, uh, we get I'm kind of both of these things. It says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's not only telling you to get your life right, he's giving you a way of, of uh, forgiveness. And it's a picture of the, of the Christ. We talked about this early on in Mark 1.4, how that baptism of John pictures the Messiah because it's, a, it's, a for, it's forgiveness without sacrifice. Forgiveness somehow apart from the temple. And the question is left in the air. Well, where's the sacrifice for all this forgiveness John keeps offering? And then Jesus shows up and he says, behold, the lamb of God. 
And so we see there's more to John's ministry than just moral reform. There is also preparing the way for the one. Now, um, in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8, we get this as well with John. It says, And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John is a, is a, is a, um, a forerunner for Christ. He was meant to point people to Jesus. That was his main ministry. Everything he does is wrapped up in that. But the reason why I bring all this up is, when they say Jesus is John the Baptist, they clearly don't see John's forerunner status. Because if they saw John as the forerunner, they would, they would recognize Jesus as the one. But to say Jesus is John the Baptist, it means they only saw John as a moral reformer. Think about that. It means they only saw John as that moral reformer. So they missed what John was saying. They missed that John was a ref- uh, um, uh, the forerunner for Christ. And the point here is that this is a wrong answer because Jesus is more than a forerunner. And more than a reformer. He's more than John the Baptist. He's not just someone who's coming saying, you guys, you've just been living wrong. You just got to live right. I'm going to show you the right way to live. And then I want you to follow me by doing what I'm doing. So the Jesus life becomes like sort of a kind and gentle and gracious and loving life. But that's, that, that, that's not the whole story with Jesus. You're misinterpreting Christ. And he won't let you do it here in Mark 8. He won't allow it. If you just think he's sort of a moral reformer. He's not merely a reformer of our morals. The next thing that they said was, okay, uh, some people are saying you're Elijah. Now, this is eschatological. This is interesting because John, they thought of him as like a sort of a reformer, maybe even a prophet. You know, actually, they did generally think of him as a prophet. But with, with um, Elijah, when they say you're Elijah, Elijah, this is, this is like a, uh, an Old Testament prophet come back is what they're saying. They're saying, hey, you're Elijah. Now, this is eschatological, meaning it's like about future prophecy, but in times, so to speak. And they're saying, ah, Elijah's supposed to come back. And he's the one who's going to get everything right before, you know, we enter into the kingdom and the Messiah actually himself shows up. So they think he's not the Messiah here. He's the forerunner for the Messiah. Now, this is confusing a bit because John the Baptist was in the spirit and power of Elijah. The scripture tells us. We'll, come, we'll talk more about this a little bit later in Mark. How he was in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Yet there is an, a, a moment in the future where Elijah will come. And I think Revelation talks about this as well. Um, so we, we have that, that happening in the future. So they're saying it's about fulfilling prophecy. That's good. That's good. Um, let me quote to you the Old Testament text they get this from, the idea that Elijah is coming, and they, they're thinking Jesus was him. In Malachi verses, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, God wrote, um, had written for us, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So the idea here is that Jesus is merely um, a great, a great and wonderful prophet and a forerunner for some other greater thing. Jesus isn't the whole deal, right? He's, he's just a forerunner for the greater thing. And I think what's happening here is they're recognizing there's this end times coming, but they don't see that Jesus' coming is in two stages. He has his first coming and his second coming. This is the classic thing that they did not understand. They didn't look at the death and resurrection of Christ as being a thing that was going to happen at all. They just saw the prophecies of the final kingdom of God, and they thought the Messiah was going to just bring that right away. So one way people have illustrated this is to say, it's like um, looking at the prophetic landscape ahead of us based upon the Old Testament, the, the, the ancient Jewish mind is, is seeing um, a giant mountain 
ahead and they see the mountain ahead and the mountain ahead is like the coming of the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God. What they don't realize is there's actually two mountains in the distance with a valley between. And so there's the first coming and the second coming, but by kind of smashing them together, they just sort of ditched the details of the first coming and focused on the second coming because that's the good news, right? That's the, that's the restoral of all these things. And they missed out on it. So Jesus is not a forerunner. He's the one. He's the son of God. He's the, he has the power to forgive. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Christ himself. Another one is, um, <clears throat> and I'll just mention this, to think that Jesus is Elijah means that they missed what Elijah was all about anyways. To think that Jesus is John means they missed what John was all about anyways. They're not understanding Jesus or John at that point. The third one was calling Jesus one of the prophets, one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus is just like a generic but wonderful messenger of God. Just a wonderful messenger of God. He's just one of the prophets. The problem with this is that the prophets themselves all speak of Jesus. I mean, he can't be one of them when they're all about him. Everything that was written was written about Christ ultimately. He is the, he is the meta-narrative of the text of the Bible. And if you're interested in that, check out the Jesus in the Old Testament series. That was my favorite thing I've ever taught through. Um, love that series. It was so, such a joy to go through. So he's, he's uh, like another messenger from God. Now there's modern equivalence to this. Modern equivalence, Islam, thinks that Jesus is just another prophet of Allah. In fact, I've heard Muslim apologists in public say that Jesus was a Muslim. Now, you don't understand Christianity very well or Jesus very well, if you can say this, but this is the claim. Jesus was Muslim. He's a prophet of Allah. Uh, but I've also heard New Age people say that Jesus was a New Age guru. Have you heard this? Jesus was a New Age guru. What are they doing? They're like, oh, he's one of, we have this idea of messengers or of, of spiritual people, and Jesus is one of those. So we're not going to say he's just a normal guy. We're going to give him spiritual status, but we'll, we'll, we'll put our framing upon him, in this case, Islam or New Age. Uh, some say, well, Jesus is one of the great sages. I knew someone who was part of a, a, a strange uh, cult in L.A. And they would gather together and they would receive messages from these great sages of the past. And they would write down special words they weren't supposed to share with anybody else. And this member of this group uh, shared with me his notebook with the special words. He was like, you can't share this with anybody else. Um, I'm not sharing with you what it said, but I'll tell you, uh, tell you this much. Um, it was gibberish. It was, it was, I mean, it was literally nonsense words, like three words together that didn't make any sense. It just didn't. And he, and he was like flipping through. It was, oh, it was the saddest thing. It was, you could see the darkness upon his mind. He couldn't tell that what he was looking at didn't, literally didn't make any sense. Um, some kind of weird spiritual thing. But they believed that while they were channeling these messages, one of the people they channeled was Jesus. Right? So he's one of our, he's one of our spirit guides. Um, Buddhists. What do you think they say about Jesus? Jesus was a Buddhist. Well, the, the, the Jew who looks at Jesus and says he's just another one of the prophets makes the same mistake as the one who thinks he's a, a Muslim or a New Age guru or a great sage or a Buddhist or an incarnation of Buddha, some people would think. Why do I say this? Because they all three of those, all, all four of those answers or five of those answers, they all miss out on two things about Jesus. Jesus is more than a man or even a mere messenger of God. He is God himself with us. And he is doing something that no one else has ever done. Ever done. Also, he isn't merely, merely calling us to right living. He's saving us through his death and resurrection. And that's the center of the gospel of Mark right here in Mark 8. Is that his death and resurrection are the big thing. There's a human tendency to diminish Jesus. But at the center of Christianity, we have 
who Jesus really is and what Jesus really did. And the, um, I would encourage anyone who thinks, you think Jesus is a Buddhist or a sage or he's, he's a Muslim or he's uh, just a great spiritual leader and a nice moral reformer, is go read the words of Jesus yourself. He doesn't let you interpret him that way. It's dishonoring to Christ to call him a great sage. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, after saying the things that Jesus said, he's either Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. But don't just say he's a nice guy. Don't, because no nice guy is like, you know, here, I'm God. Worship me. I'm going to save you. I'm the only way to heaven. What a nice guy. Like Either you're right or you're crazy or you're lying. Those are the options, a Lord, liar, lunatic argument that C.S. Lewis brought forward. And I think that <clears throat> we have this human tendency to reinterpret Jesus to fit into whatever box we would like him to fit into. And that's, that's what Mark is keeping it from happening here. Um, in verse 29, <clears throat> it says, And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Now there's more to this story about Peter and Jesus and their interaction right here. I'm not going to focus on that because we're in the Gospel of Mark. I really want to focus on, this is the whole point. The whole point is, Jesus is the Christ. That's the whole point. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. So he's not the forerunner. He's the actual one. When, when I say Christ and Messiah, and I use those words as synonyms because they are synonyms. They mean the same thing. So in the Greek, it's the word Christos, which is Christ. Right? We translate, put it into Christ, sort of transliterate it into English. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach or Messiah. And these are the same words in different languages. And it, it, the etymology of the word, like when you break the word down into its pieces, it means anointed one. But that's not what the word means. Like, let's, There's actually a, something called the etymological fallacy. Have you guys heard of this? Etymological fallacy is when you think a word means whatever its constituent parts mean. But words usually mean a lot more than that. And sometimes the parts of the word are actually radically different than the meaning of the word because we just use words like Google. We use the word, but we don't, we're not, I don't even know what the constituent parts of Google mean. It's, you know, if there are constituent parts to it. But at one point, it represented a, a number value. At some point, another point, another context, it represented a company. But now we use it like a verb, like it means you're searching online for something. And so you have to look at the usage of the word. Anyway, the word Messiah, the word Christ, that came to be used as like the ultimate, mess, the, not just messenger, but the ultimate coming one of God. He was going to come. He was going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. He was going to do it all. He was going to make it all happen. This is what the ultimate scriptures were all about. There was this great messianic expectation that they had. And so when he says, you are the Christ, it's saying, you're the one who will restore the Jewish people. You are the one who will bring the kingdom of God. You are the one who will fulfill the promises of God to the people of Israel. That's what they're thinking. But they're mostly thinking that this involves killing a lot of Gentiles and setting up a physical kingdom on earth because they have misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. So they misunderstood. They had some biblical expectations, but they had like extra biblical ones too. They thought, and we've got research on this, like what did the Jews think of the Messiah back then? They thought he was going to bring an army, destroy the Gentiles, restore Israel to Davidic glory, um, in one source we have from the Qumran caves, these ancient writings from back at the time of Christ, it says that the Messiah, specifically, when he comes, he will kill the Roman emperor. Do you see the problem with Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah? And they're thinking like, yes, let's go kill him. Do you wonder why Jesus says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> and then the next thing he says is, and I'm going to die and rise. Because they they're, they're don't understand his mission. 
that's the idea. This is the purpose of the Messianic secret. They call it in Mark that scholars have a field day with. I think the answer is right here in the text. It's, the purpose is to fix their misconceptions about what the Messiah was going to do. In Scripture, um, unlike the Jews who had no room for a cross for the Messiah, just like Peter representing these Jews, for God forbid that you would die. No, no, I can't even hear it. I can't even think about it. Don't even say those things. That this was the attitude, but... But Jesus, his attitude is, I must die. And when you look at Psalm 22, Isaiah 52 and 53, we see that this, was, this is what was prophesied. It just wasn't expected. And sometimes our expectations don't fit the scripture. We need to let the scripture guide us. In verse 30, he warns them to tell no one about him. And the answer, I think, is plain, right? Why? Because all their misconceptions are going to cause all kinds of problems. Even the disciples didn't really understand the mission of Jesus. Even when they're told about it, they're like scratching their head like, this must be some sort of parable, right? <laughs> he can't really mean that, right? Like, he says he's going to die and rise again. Like, what he really means is kill the Roman emperor. Like, what is, it must mean something other than that. They're just, they're just confused. Understandably, they have a lot of uh, thoughts that aren't necessarily biblical, even though they're biblic-ish, because they might have to do with the second coming of Christ. They might have to do with the ultimate kingdom, but they're mixed up with a bunch of other things. Verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I don't know if they really heard the after three days rise again part because the and be rejected by, think about this, rejected by who? The elders, chief priests, and scribes. All of the people who, who are leading the people of Israel. In our culture, we don't have these kinds of leaders so much. Our culture is kind of, we're kind of unique, I think, as far as who we look to to lead us in our culture. Um, some people, they, they have different, different faces that they consider their trustworthy sources of leadership, and it, we're really sort of fragmented in that. But, uh, but in their culture, the, the chief priest describes the Pharisees like, that's it, dude. These are the leaders. These are the Jewish leaders of the Jewish people. They're all going to reject me. What? This doesn't compute. This doesn't make sense to them. He's going to suffer, and then he's going to be killed, be killed, and then he's going to rise again. Now, these are exactly the things they would not expect. These are exactly the things that also accomplish salvation. These things are essential to the mission of Jesus, and they're totally, like, even offensive to the expectations of the Jewish people. This is the reason for the Messianic secret. This is the big reveal. I'm going to suffer, die, and rise again. That's the, that's the big reveal. Notice the word must in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Finally, he's teaching them these things. I have to suffer. I have to die. I will be rejected. I will rise again. Why must he suffer? I'm going to give you a couple reasons. One, it's prophetic. Like it's God's going to do what he said he's going to do with Jesus. It's prophetic. And this is kind of what Jesus comes back to later. After his death and resurrection, he has a conversation with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So these two disciples and Jesus is, is talking with them. They don't realize it's him yet. He's, he's risen. They don't realize it's him and they're chatting with him. And there Jesus reveals to them, well, I'll just read to you in his words, Luke 24, 25. He said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Not any, but all. They believed in lots of things the prophets had said, but not all of it. So he says, you're slow in heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, right? To suffer these things and to enter into his glory. So he's saying, if you had 
more carefully read the scriptures, you would have, you would be like, of course this has to happen. Of course this has to happen. So it's prophetic. This Jesus has to do this because God said he'll do it. But the other thing is it saves us. I mean, this is the gospel of our salvation. My salvation is purchased by the death and resurrection of Christ. He identifies with me going to the cross. It's in him I die and I, and I rise too. My sins are washed away. Jesus is salvation. That's actually what his name means is God is salvation. Right? Yeshua. Romans 3.25, listen to uh, the phrase in his blood or by his blood that we get in these verses I'm about to share with you. So blood represents the life of a, of a person or of a being, especially in sacrificial connotations or senses. So like in, in the temple, when they're offering an animal for sacrifice, it's like the life is in the blood. So the blood is offered on the altar because the blood represents the animal's life sacrificially. Okay, so with that in context, these verses, uh, Romans 3.25 says about Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So he was a sacrifice. His death is what is going to accomplish the propitiation or the, the dealing, um, dealing with my sin, dealing with uh, the judgment that would fall upon me because of my sin, reconciling me to God. Romans 5.9 says, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So that Jesus' death is about this sacrifice to save me, to forgive me for my sins. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or in heaven. So this is, this is Christianity 101, right? Like in hindsight, you're like, duh, Mike. This is like the first thing you learn as a Christian. But it was totally confusing to them. And it's confusing to a lot of people even today. Even people who think they're Christians. I've I've had those conversations where you, you're not like mad at the person. You're just, you're trying to help them understand that maybe what they think they know, they don't know yet. And so you ask him like, well, why did Jesus die? And they go, uh, I know this one. (laughs) I know this. I know there's a good answer here. I got it somewhere. I don't, I can't think of it. Or you ask people like, are you going to go to heaven? And they say, yes, I'm going to be eternally with God or have eternal life. Yes. Why? Because I'm a good person. And you're like, but, but what about your sin? Oh, God forgives that. He just forgives it? Like, why does he forgive it? Because he's loving. You're missing something. I mean, that's true. He forgives you because he loves you, but you're missing a really important element. Jesus is like, I must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. The scripture tells us over and over again, it was this blood of Jesus, this sacrificial death that washes us of our sins. He paid for my sin so that God could be holy and forgiving, holy and just in punishing or dealing with sin, with his wrath or his, his, um, his public display of his displeasure of sin, along with still forgiving us. It's God's holy and forgiving, both because of Christ. So in verse 32, he's telling them really plainly about all this stuff. It says he was stating the matter plainly. Uh, when he states it plainly, I think the point of that commentary in Mark is to say, um, I mean, it's, divi- it's inspired commentary. I, I know someone's like, you called it commentary? I don't mean that. I mean, Mark's telling us what Jesus was doing, so he's commenting, but it's inspired. You get what I'm saying, right? Don't be confused. I get comments on YouTube. I'm just saying. <laughs> I can hear them already coming. Um, 
so the point I think of this is to say that Jesus sometimes said things in, in sort of more riddly form or parable type form, and the disciples would just sort of walk away going, huh, and they didn't get it, right? But here, Jesus says it so plainly that they really do understand. Like he's telling us he's going to suffer, be rejected by these specific groups, die, and then rise again. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And this is good advice. Whenever you have a correction for someone who's a leader over you, take them aside. <laughs> right? I, I learned this the hard way. I remember uh, in staff meeting uh, wanting to disagree with uh, something our church was doing. And I was like, I thought, it's staff meeting. This is like where we talk and we're honest and open and I, I slowly learned that I, I should have just pulled my pastor aside and had a nice one-on-one conversation. I think that that was probably not the wisest opportunity. Um, so that was, the, that was the only mistake I've ever made uh, in, <laughs> on staff at a church, though, for sure. Um, but yes, take them aside. So Peter takes him aside. He's smart here. He's, he's not, what this means, though, is Peter had the wisdom to take him aside, right? He's not just like, bleh. People, people make fun of Peter a lot, right? They call him Big Mouth Peter or... Um, uh, Peter has the foot and mouth disease, right? Open mouth, insert foot, um, that sort of thing. But he takes him aside, and it's understandable, especially in his context, why he couldn't accept the Messiah was going to die. It's understandable. So he decides to rebuke Jesus. And then verse 33, which is not a good idea. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus turns and sees the disciples. So he's not only concerned about Peter, but he's aware of them overhearing Peter trying to rebuke him. Um, or being aware of this moment of correction. And so he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you were not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus finally says, I have a cross, finally totally reveals it, the big unveiling, the big essential part of the Messiah that nobody was paying attention to, to save us. Peter freaks out. And why did he rebuke Jesus? I think we understand It was not only love for Jesus, but it was because he just knew that that wasn't what was going to happen to the Messiah. He just knew that the Messiah was just going to create a victory for the Jewish people. There was no sin to die for because they weren't paying attention to that. So Peter knew Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, the Christ, but he did not understand what Jesus was doing. And Jesus in Mark is revealing to us that you need both. You need to not only know that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, you need to know that he dies for your sins and he rises for your justification. That's the thing. You've got to know the gospel. There are those who, like Peter, <laughs> uh, want to suggest a ultimately satanic idea. And I get that from Jesus because he says, get behind me, Satan. I don't think that Peter was possessed. I think that he's trying to say that this idea of yours is from the adversary. This is against my very person and my very mission to not die on the cross. Um, there are those who would say that Jesus' death on the cross was not necessary for our salvation. And there are some who would say it was just Paul. It was just Paul the Apostle who later came on and came along and changed the gospel. And he like altered things because Jesus was really just a moral reformer making us get our lives right with God through obedience and good works. And then Paul comes along and he's got this whole thing about justification and the cross makes, is, means all these things that Jesus had never intended. But here we have it. Um, here we have it from the mouth of Jesus. So there are many today who debate about this messianic secret in the Gospels and they have a lot of fanciful ideas. But I think what I'm trying to get across here um, is one of my goals with the Mark series is that those who've been exposed to more like liberal, um, weird unbelieving in some cases interpretations of the gospel of Mark will get grounded in in what's actually happening in the text based on context, not just my claims. The point here is the context is that 
Um, this is the great reveal moment. Jesus finally tells plainly, not only shows who he is, he's the Christ, but what his mission is and how that is so important. He calls you Satan if you try to get around it. That's kind of a big deal. And, he, and, uh, and, and it gives us why Jesus did it, right? Because they'll act wrong like Peter did because, um, because Jesus will not let you interpret him. Here's a big point. He won't let you interpret him without the cross and the resurrection. He won't let you understand the mission of the Messiah without the cross and the resurrection. It's essential. It's not just something that happened at the end that just is thrown on there, like where Jesus shows how he's loving and he won't strike back at those who kill him. That's true, but that's not the point, right? There's more to it than that. So the Messiah has a cross. And the next thing he says is he then adds another difficulty on top of this. After saying the Messiah has a cross, he's going to die and rise. He looks at the crowd and tells them, you have a cross too. And this applies to us because we want to follow Jesus. We have a cross. Let's talk about that. Verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, must. Remember he said the son of man must suffer, be rejected, die and rise. Now he says, if you want to come after me, you must deny, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does it mean to take up my cross? Um, I have, I think, four points. I try to like categorize what it means to take up your cross. And I put it into four points. These are my points. This is my understanding of this. So I'm just going to try. I try to make things structured sometimes and it helps me in understanding them. So I'm going to give you four points. um, What it means to take up my cross. And the first one is it means dying with Christ. And I I stress with Christ because I'm identifying myself with Christ. Like I'm not actually going to go onto a cross, get nailed onto it and die. But rather... I am identifying myself with Christ so that by um, faith, I am now in Christ and in his death, I've already died. So there's an identification. This is, this is what happens when you get saved, man. I believe I trust in Jesus. Now I'm dead with Christ. I die with him. Romans 6.8, I'm going to give you some scriptures that support this. Romans 6.8 says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If we've died with Christ, this is like a past tense. Those who are living and breathing at the time, serving the Lord, they've died with Christ because they're positionally in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And here's a, a cool theology thing where you look and you compare Adam to Jesus. We've done this before, but the idea is that Adam represents all of us in the garden, failing God. Jesus goes on our behalf, on the behalf of you and me, and he dies to pay for the sins of man so that we can all be forgiven. So just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all can be restored, renewed, forgiven. The best explanation of this is in Romans 5 and then the latter part of 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to get more into the Adam-Christ whole concept, it's Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. Those are the two passages. Um, so this is some people call uh, representation or identification. It's like I'm in Christ. So when I take up my cross, the first part of that is simply believing in Jesus and trusting in him and what he did on my behalf. I'm, now I'm dead with Christ. I've died with Christ. So I'm not actually, you're not going to get killed necessarily. You might, but that's different. Right? This, is, this is different. All right. The second thing is being forgiven by grace. So I identify with Christ. That's part of taking up my cross. Another one is being forgiven by grace as opposed to law or works. Um, so the Bible sort of presents two paths of salvation. One of them, everyone can try and everyone will absolutely fail. And the other one, anyone can try and everyone who does will absolutely succeed. And so there's like the impossible path and there's the possible path. 
The impossible path is through law obedience. Be righteous, right? God will never send an actually good, truly good person to hell because they're good. Like they've made it. They're perfectly righteous. At which point someone says, well, I'm good, but I'm not like that good, you know? And I'm like, well, that's the problem, right? Like that's the problem. We have sin issues before God. And so that's the law, the law path, the law obedience path, right? But when I identify with Christ, I have a different path that's successful. The path is Jesus lived the perfect life on my behalf. Jesus died on the cross to suffer for my sins. And I have put my faith and trust in him so that his sacrifice, the blood of his sacrifice, cleanses me of my sin. And that works for everyone regardless of how much sin you've committed. Again, this is gospel 101 stuff, right? This is believe in Jesus and you'll be forgiven. So that's the second part of this. Um, We get this in the book of Romans. We get this in the book of Galatians. It it expounds on it in great detail. Galatians 3.13, here's a verse to support this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In Galatians, what he's saying is, look, when you take that law path and you sin, the law says, now you got to die. Guess what Jesus did? He died for your sin. So that law has been satisfied that now through Christ you can be forgiven. So taking up your cross in in the case of these first two, um, identification and forgiveness, is just believing and trusting in Christ. That's all you do. You just trust in him. That's take, I'm taking up my cross when I just trust in him to be my salvation, to be my righteousness. The third thing, what does it mean to take up your cross, is saying goodbye to the godless life and lifestyle. That's the third thing. And there's scripture for this too, Romans 6.6. 6. It says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin and we can walk and live out this new life. As a result of that faith I've put in Jesus, I am now, um, that, uh, that cross that he bore, I, I've identified with him, but something spiritually has really happened. And I am now set free from the control of the sinful flesh in my life. And you're like, are you sure about that, Mike? Like You still have to work this out in your life. You still have to walk it out daily and walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the daily battle. So it doesn't mean, though, um, that we have a passionless life. And that's what some people think. Oh, so I just I, there's no passion in the Christian life. I think rather the Christian life is full of pure passions. That's the idea. Very passionate, but pure passions. Intense love, intense care, um, joy, all those wonderful things. They're just meant to be pure and not tainted by sin. And that's the life we want to pursue. So how do we do it? Galatians, it tells us that what, what we have now is we have a, a renewed spirit. We have a crucified flesh. But guess what? The crucified flesh is still pressing on you to sin. Do you feel it? You feel it right now? You're thinking you want to get food instead of finish this Bible study? <laughs> that's like, that's a mortal sin, I think, actually. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, every sin's mortal, actually, when you think about it. Well, that's another debate. But, uh, but yeah, but Jesus forgives you for all of them and you don't have to do the priest. It's a different, different discussion. Anyhow, um, what we do now have is this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And as Christians, I think we should think of our daily walk as, as, um, as a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Galatians 5.16, it says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So I have to look at me and say, look, I have two sets of desires. I have desires to do sin. That's the flesh. I have desires to do godly things. That's the spirit. And I have a choice in the middle. Which one will I obey? And our call is to, right? I'm crucified with Christ, to take up that cross and to walk in, walk in the truth and the light that Jesus has given me through the cross. Galatians 5, 24 through 25. 
He said, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So it's a call to go from positionally how we're in Christ to living it out conditionally in our life. If you live by the Spirit, come on, let's walk by the Spirit. We're like, we're, we're telling Christians, come on, get up, live for the Lord. Live for the Lord. Resign yourself to, to walk in the Spirit. In Luke 9.23, Jesus is, it's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, where he also offers the same, like, discussion with Peter. And after that discussion with Peter, he says that you should take up your cross, and it adds the word daily, and follow him. That's really interesting in Luke, how it has the word daily. So being crucified with Christ is, is also like a daily practice, a daily thing I live out in my life, that I am crucified with Christ, so I daily am going to walk in the light of that. You experience this every time you face temptation and you say to yourself, no, I died with Christ. I don't need sin to rule over my life, to rule over my, myself. And you, through the victory of the cross, you set aside the, uh, the, not just the desire to sin, but the choice to sin. You choose not to do that and you follow Christ. But you do it through him. Um, there's one passage that incorporates all three of these. Dying with Christ, you know, identification, being forgiven by grace, uh, not law. And then the third one, saying goodbye to the godless life and lifestyle that we live before. One passage incorporates all three of these, I think, and it's Galatians 2, verses 19 through 20. Let me read it to you. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. There's that identification and forgiveness. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And this is this walking in the Spirit now, living it out in our lives. This to me is, to be just frank with you guys, is a, is a wonderful verse I like to quote when I'm feeling very tempted. And I find it spiritually strengthening to just quote, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I just remind myself of this truth and I find it strengthening. Okay, here's the fourth point. What does it mean to take up my cross? Identification, forgiven by grace, not law, saying goodbye to the godless life and lifestyle. And finally, four, you may actually die. And this was a real thing and has been a real thing for lots of Christians. And I don't think all Christians need to go be martyred. But I think it's healthy as Christians. If you care so much about the eternal life that you have in Christ, that you understand that martyrdom isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. It really isn't. The apostles, um, most if not all of them, seem to have died as martyrs. Countless believers throughout time have died as martyrs, and our attitude needs to be as Christians that we're just unstoppable. That we're not arrogant, just unstoppable. You can't stop me from preaching the gospel. Like, how do you stop people that are willing to die for their beliefs? Not willing to kill, that's Islam, right? We're not willing to kill for our beliefs, to die, willing to suffer and die for our beliefs, and you can't stop us. That, that is the people that we need to be. In the book of Acts, we, we see this in Acts chapter 4, the apostles are threatened, and they're like, we're going to beat you, or we're going to put you in prison, we're going to do all sorts of things to you, and they respond by praying, God, give us courage. Give us courage, so that we can just go and preach it, because they realize what they really need is courage, right? They're not, they, they don't see themselves as, we're such upstanding, amazing, committed Christians that we don't even need to pray for courage, right? We're just like, oh, pff, we're going to just, we're going to do what we're going to do. We don't care about your threats. Instead, they're like, Lord, look on their threats and give us courage. We need that. We need that. Um, 
I'm not saying that Christians can't be fearful. They just have to be unstoppable. I'm not saying you can't be terrified sometimes. You just you have to be unstoppable. It's, it's, a, it's a different thing. Then in Acts 5, they get beaten. They get beaten for their, uh, for their preaching of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been beaten as an adult, taken aside and just beaten down, just physically beat up just because you were preaching the gospel or something. But I love their response in verse 41 of Acts 5. It says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They had such an eternal mindset on things that they saw the suffering for the gospel as something that they were they were blessed to be able to take part of. Why? Because they had looked to Jesus who had suffered so much for us. So the idea that they could somehow suffer for him was considered an honor. God give us this attitude where, um, where we don't seek out suffering. They never sought out suffering for the Lord. Like, I'm going to make myself suffer so I can honor Jesus. Like, this is never the idea. But rather, I will not stop. And if I'm persecuted or attacked, I will rejoice in the Lord that I'm even counted worthy to suffer for his name. That is a beautiful attitude. So Jesus, he's my inspiration for all of those things. Um, so we can be unstoppable. Um, there are some, I'm just going to mention this briefly. Uh, there are some who say that this is a fabrication. This whole story about Jesus is saying, you know, I'm going to die and rise again is just fabricated. Um, and some of them, they, they don't, I don't know if they have evidence that they would present for this. I haven't heard ever, any evidence ever, at least not that I've found yet. I'd respond to it if I had. But where they try to say that the Gospels wrote in this stuff about Jesus predicting his death and resurrection. Because in real history, what happened is Jesus was going to be the Messiah, then he died. And then they were like, boy, we better figure out some way to keep this thing going. Now, this is, it seems to me this is really reaching, right? This is like a, a just-so story. It's like it just fits for wanting to not believe that Jesus would perhaps have, have risen again or that he could predict that it was going to happen. Um, the only thing I've heard for this is storytelling. I've never heard any evidence to support that it's true. Against this, though, let me give you like, I think I have six points against it. I'll give you real quick. Um, one, this would require a conspiracy amongst a large number of authors that we have from the first century. Every New Testament source, every first century source we have, excuse me, not just the New Testament, every first century source we have about Jesus tells the same story about his death and resurrection, that it actually happened, not just that it was proclaimed, um, or, or that it was just proclaimed for those who were the unbelievers. They at least admit that this thing was proclaimed right away. Um, so it would be a conspiracy among multiple authors with nobody saying otherwise. These kinds of conspiracies don't generally happen in real life, okay? We don't really have like the these actual giant conspiracies happening. Conspiracies last for like 10 minutes, especially when they're big, because someone always talks. It's just what happens. Um, another point is that Mark is right in the little nitty-gritty details about ancient Palestine, the, the geography, the, the layout of things, the nature of the Sea of Galilee. He's right about the names of people in his gospel relating to the names that people had at that time in that place which is remarkable considering that most people think Mark was written from Rome where they wouldn't even know what Palestinian names were because the Jews in Rome had different names than the Jews in Palestine. And so it's, in other words, somehow Mark and the other gospels, they got these things right, all the little nitty gritty details right, but they totally fabricated a bunch of stuff in the middle of it. So this, this again, this is not only a conspiracy, but what I'm pointing out is the difficulty of doing this. 
Do you know how many people in the first century made fake histories with the little nitty-gritty details right, but with the major stuff false? None. We have zero examples of this sort of work because they just weren't being produced. They weren't like, like nowadays we go based on a true story or something like that. Like this sort of thing just wasn't uh, going on. Um, there's also no alternate version of Jesus. Here's a third reason. There's no alternate version of Jesus. The, the alternate versions of Jesus come in the second century, third century, years down the road after Christianity is gaining speed. And it's clearly written by non-disciples of Christ who are trying to hijack who Jesus is. The first century accounts give us a, a consistent account of who Jesus is. Not only this, but the earliest account of Christ's death and resurrection is in 1 Corinthians 15. It, it, it's dated to probably within seven years of the cross. Within seven years. And already, we're getting that the disciples... And the apostles were eyewitnesses of not only his death, but also his resurrection. Meaning that it had to be a conspiracy that involved the original followers of Jesus that was carried out with great care amongst later authors of various texts, carefully working to make sure they got the little nitty-gritty details right. And then they incorporated phrases of, that seem authentically Jesus, like the Son of Man phrase that scholars think Jesus probably really said that. If it says Son of Man, well, he says the Son of Man must be killed. You know, and they're doing all these little careful things. Have you guys heard the term ad hoc? It means you probably are making that up because you just you want your conclusion, so you're making stuff up. In addition to these things, we have the apostles' willingness to die. Their willingness to die. In particular, guys like Paul, Peter, James. We have really good historical confirmation that they uh, were martyred for their faith and that they were all along, as they preached the gospel, they were willing to suffer for Christ's name. People who don't knowingly lie and then suffer so many things for those lies. If all they have to do is confess that it, was, that it was a lie, and then they can go their merry way. They just don't generally do that. We also have Old Testament prophecy. How do you make that up? How do you make up Isaiah 53, Psalm 22? I, and what I'm saying is we have all these different arrows that it, it makes the most sense if Jesus really just did tell them, hey, look, you don't really know who the Messiah is. I'm trying to tell you. I'm going to die and rise again. Like, Keep things under wraps so you don't confuse people until, until it makes more sense. After his death and resurrection, he commissions the gospel to go out, the apostles to go out and tell him everything. But first they have to understand it. So then um, <clears throat> here we have verse 35. It says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Clearly, this is a choice between a worldly life and eternal life. Lose your life, save it. You want to gain your life, you lose it. It's about this life in this world versus eternal life. Jesus makes this kind of comparison several times in the Gospels, where he talks about this life versus eternal life. It's not this life versus heaven. It's this life versus eternal life, which does begin now, right? I begin living that eternal life right now. So it's not like I have no benefits in Christ until I die. It's just that I'm living on a, to put it maybe a little awkwardly, I'm living on a different plane. I'm living for a different kingdom. That would be maybe a more biblical phrase. I'm living for a different kingdom, not of this world, but for the kingdom of Christ. In verse 36, it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Um, so it's about your eternal soul. That's the idea. That the, the dilemma that Jesus puts at your feet is, Hey, pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, I'll, be, I'll bring your forgiveness. I'll be your sacrifice. I will wash you clean of your sins. But you're going to have to abandon the godless life. And you're going to have to serve um, in the kingdom, as part of this kingdom and not part of this world. So it's not just an intellectual belief, but an actual commitment of faith. So there's a cost. There's a cost. But Jesus is saying that cost is about your eternal soul. 
when you say no to the gospel, you're saying yes to a temporary, temporary worldly life and no to eternal life. And this is Jesus's wager. Some of you guys have heard of Pascal's wager. In Pascal's wager, he's like, <clears throat> um, on balance, you know, it, you know, if you're if you're if you're undecided on the evidence, you got to say that the the um, the risk reward analysis of the gospel, the only reasonable thing is to give your life to Christ or to at least put yourself in positions where you're 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 making it more likely for you to find God. Like, so you're praying, you're going to church, and you're spending time reading the Word and things like that. That's Pascal's wager, but this is Jesus's wager. His wager is basically whatever you lose for Christ is like nothing compared to what you gain for Christ. That's the wager. Gives us courage. Jesus went to the cross because he knew what he would gain. Right, our salvation. I can suffer for his name. I can put off things of this world. I can set aside sin. I can deny myself even because I know what I gain. And it's more than worth it. In fact, it's not even worthy to be compared we got to remind ourselves of this. Because sometimes we go through this life like this is all there is. And really, we're being what Jesus warned us against in Matthew 6. He goes, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like that. Right? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous uh, and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Uh, Jesus has a second coming. This is actually pretty cool because Jesus himself is declaring, yes, there's a second coming. I'm coming back. And I'm coming not lowly, right? I'm coming in the glory, in the glory of God, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus not only in Mark 8 predicts his death and resurrection, he predicts his second coming. This would have been a puzzle to them, um, but ultimately this is the whole gospel to Christians and it's the eschatology of the second coming of Christ that we're looking forward to. And... I think that this this stuff is, um, uh, Jesus not only offers us here, let's not miss this, not only offers us this incredible forgiveness and salvation, he also says, and here's the consequences of rejecting it. He doesn't hold back on that, right? And he's like, look, you'll be ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you, because I'm coming back. And that kingdom's eternal. So you can have this world or you can have the eternal kingdom. Um, context might give us a little bit more on uh, how to understand this. Last week I mentioned how like the blind man that Jesus healed, how this may be like a picture of the disciples not understanding the gospel or the message of Christ or what Jesus is doing. They don't understand what he's doing and they slowly understand. So the, so the story goes like this, right? The blind man, he was healed partially. He, he was blind and then Jesus, he, um, uh, he partially heals the man and the man says, I see, I see men like trees walking around. So it was like fuzzy. He couldn't quite tell what he was looking at. And then he puts his hands on him again and then the man can see clearly. But the words used in the healing of the man and then the words used in Jesus with the disciples right before this happens are really similar, right? He tells them like, hey, I'm showing you these things, but you don't get it. You have eyes, but you don't see. And let me read you the passage, right? This is what we would call a Mark and Sandwich, where Mark puts a story in the context of other events so that, and maybe Jesus is the one who really put it there, um, so that we will catch this theological significance of it. So Jesus says this to the disciples before he heals the blind man. He says, and Jesus, uh, this is Mark eight seventeen. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, uh, do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? So the disciples are, have blind so to speak, with understanding what Jesus is doing. They see what he's doing, but they don't get it. Mark 8, 23, a few verses down, 
It says, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he said to him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he let, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. This is like the one time Jesus partially heals somebody and then fully heals them. And here's the disciples. Vision. Jesus is the Messiah. We see. No, you can't die. That can't possibly happen. That can't possibly be the thing. Because they don't see. They see, they see the clarity of the Messiah the way the guy saw men like trees walking around. They like misunderstand what exactly Jesus is about. So I think that this is, a, is intentional. I think it's intentional. And the revealing that Jesus does in Mark 8 is not over. Mark is, is like, uh, the book of Mark as we go through, it just continues to like peel off the layers of like Jesus' true mission and his true purpose. We're going to get more of this, not only of his mission going to the cross, but of his identity. We'll get more of that as we go. So this is a fun part to be in in Mark. As it started, earlier in Mark, we're going through and we're seeing Jesus does a miracle. And when you pull Old Testament texts that relate to that miracle, you go, oh, he's like God with them, you know, but it's like subtle. Right? You got it. You got to know the Old Testament. Now it's becoming more open and more in your in front of your face, and it's like ramping up, so to speak. So it's really uh, neat. I'm excited. I love I love going through this stuff. I hope it's a blessing to you guys. And um, we're gonna pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word, Jesus. We just confess you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. You are the one who suffered, was rejected, died for our sins, and rose again. Rose again for our justification. We trust in you completely for the forgiveness of our sins and for our salvation. We look no further than the cross of Christ for the complete salvation that we need. We, um, we want to take up our cross, die to ourselves, and live out the salvation that you've provided to walk more godly, more holy, and we pray more boldly, not, not with arrogance, Lord, but with great boldness about the truth of Christ in this world that... Um, needs to hear it so badly. Father, we pray that you'd empower us, that you give us boldness and courage. Show us more and more how to walk in the Spirit so that we would glorify your name, Jesus, and we would live the spiritual life. In Jesus' name, amen.